Good evening, everyone. Hey, uh, we're busy with the <clears throat> the Life of Moses series, and um, this this evening we're going to dwell a little bit with uh, our our friends as they are dwelling in the wilderness. Let me just make a couple of introductory remarks. The first one is this, that the history of the world, I, I know enough about history to say this with a fair degree of confidence. The history of the world is basically one group of people taking stuff from other groups of people, whether it is nation against nation, tribe against tribe, empire against empire, there has consistently always been this conflict between different people groups, all right? and. Uh, and most of us, if you look at these countries' history and, well, if, if you look at how they celebrate their history, the most pivotal moment in their calendar is always when they gained independence, all right? So in South Africa, everything is basically a shrine to our independence and the struggle against apartheid. When you go to the airport, it's Awartambo, which is the fight against apartheid. On your way, when you drive there, you're probably going to drive in a Mandela Street somewhere. Um, you go to a Steve Biko hospital, you, you, you see a Desmond Tutu Street, or you see these, these names all over. We enshrine these guys that were major players in our liberation. But it's no different anywhere else. If you go to America, you've got the 4th of July. What's the other name for that? Independence Day, where they celebrate Will Smith and others defeating those aliens that, that were trying to invade um, America. It's the same in Europe. It's the same in Latin America. It's the same. It doesn't matter where you go in Africa, where you go in the world. There is always this, this is when we gained our independence. This is our liberation story. And Israel is no different. Israel also has a liberation account. It's called the Exodus. But the one difference between the liberation account of, of Israel and the liberation account of the rest of the world is that it stops there. It stops with the story, we gained our freedom, everything is going to be amazing now, and the bad guys are over there, we defeated them, or they are gone, and now everything is going to be fine. That's how most liberation stories end not the one of Israel, not the biblical liberation story. As a matter of fact, what they do, <coughs> excuse me, what they do, <coughs> this is what happens when you lift the mask mandate. Um, uh, when uh, they, they, they exit Egypt, it's the, it's, it's the great exodus, it is wonderful, it is amazing, and then for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness, doing multiple laps in the desert. Why? Why is that? For God to take Israel out of Egypt was relatively easy time-wise. took a couple of months. A couple of plagues, barabim, barabum, red sea open. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Please read it. And then we're in the wilderness for 40 years. So why is it necessary for them to dwell in the wilderness for 40 years, but it's, it's, it's only necessary for God to defeat this great oppressor in a matter of months? Because it seems to take Egypt, uh, uh, rather to take Israel out of slavery was easy, but to take the slave out of Israel is much more difficult. Does that make sense? To take Israel out of slavery, that's the easy part, but to, to deal with 
with, with all of the brokenness that exists in the human heart, that exists in, in, in this people, Israel, and that exists in all of us, is going to take much longer. And I think, <clears throat> I think a lot of people <clears throat> uh, would be wise to take heed of this. A lot of countries that's always just excited. If we can just get rid of the oppressor, if we can just get rid of that, that guy. I mean, we see this every, every time there's an election. Ramaphoria, yes, now everything is going to be okay. Or Obama, uh, the change you want. Now everything is going to be okay. It, it, it doesn't quite work like that. It is um, underestimating the, the human heart. It is not taking into account the need of, of a wilderness. <clears throat> All right. Something else that... Um, that I think we, we need to understand is that uh, in the biblical imagination, you see this theme of the wilderness again and again. There's, there's this constant reference to the wilderness. And the passage that we're going to look at this evening comes from Deuteronomy 8. And uh, basically, we are at the end of Moses' life now when we go to Deuteronomy 8. But he is accessing memories that happened with Israel in the wilderness. So it's basically that type of movie where we have now forwarded and our protagonist is an old man, but he is talking about stuff that happened in the past. And Deuteronomy is interesting in the sense that they are about to go into the promised land 40 years later, and Moses is basically giving them sermon after sermon after sermon of don't forget what we learned in the wilderness. Don't forget what we learned in the wilderness. Don't forget what we learned in the wilderness. He is trying to rehash to ensure that this is deep into the, in, in the imagination of uh, all of Israel. So Deuteronomy 8 from verse 1 goes like this. The whole commandment that I command you today, uh, you, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. As a matter of fact, let me just stop there for a second. Manna, the word manna means, if you translate it literally, is what is this? <laughs> okay? They had no idea what's going on. So the manna is, what, what is this? I don't know, but I'm eating it. And then from, from, now on, from then on, it just became, are you going to have some what is this? Yeah, I think I'll have some what is this. Do you have some leftover what is this? Yeah, I'll have some leftover what is this. So uh, he, he says, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out and you and your f uh, and on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valley and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. 
Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me here. You shall remember the Lord your God, For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. All right. So Moses is is telling his people, please remember the lessons that we've learned in the wilderness. And he, he gives this summary of what happened, the, the manna, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock, etc., etc. Friends, when, when we think of the wilderness, we probably think of a quaint town close to George. Or maybe we think of the bushveld, you know, it's vault, wilderness, game. Or maybe you think of the Drakensberger. That is definitely not the biblical idea behind wilderness. Wilderness in the Bible is basically the Northern Cape minus the Orange River. It is a super, super desert, all right? It is completely inhospitable to human life. You are at the mercy of the elements. And, and those of you who have ever been to Sinai Peninsula, Egypt, again, minus the, the, the Nile River, maybe uh, you understand something of the geography of, uh, of, of, of Israel. It is a desert. It is a desolate place. Now, my, probably my most um, close encounter, my, my, my closest encounter with the desert happened a couple of years ago when me and a friend went to Sources Flay in Namibia. And we were very ill-prepared. First of all, we decided it's a good idea to go there in December. Um, Secondly, we had a little rental that couldn't get very close, and we decided we wanted to walk to Sources Flay, to the the famous, uh, I think they call it Doya Flay. And so we walked there, and everything was fine because it was overcast, and then all of a sudden, things turned, and, and those few clouds just disappeared. And it was 40 degrees upwards, um, and it was just scorching. We were, unsurprisingly, the only people there. And after a while, we, you, you want to walk really slowly to preserve energy, but the sand literally burns you as it sort of goes into your sandals. So you can't walk slowly, because otherwise you, otherwise you burn, so you have to walk quickly. At first, we made a couple of jokes but then the jokes also disappeared because you want to preserve moisture in your, in your mouth. And the more you talk, um, the less moisture you have. Uh, and it's not funny anymore. So we, 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 we are not cracking jokes anymore. The other thing is there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to aim. Like if there's a tree, oh, let's aim for that tree over there. 
well, I mean, for a long part, there was just nothing to aim for. And at that moment, when you find yourself in this very literal wilderness, you know what you do? You pray. <laughs> okay? That's at least what I did. And I don't think I necessarily prayed on the way going there. At that stage, it was fun. I didn't pray when it was nice and overcast. We, we, we were making, I don't know, comments and whatnot. I didn't really pray the night before that much. I wasn't really spiritually in tune. But all of a sudden, with no moisture in my mouth, being just a little bit worried and thinking, oh, man, what a silly way to end. Um, I, I think, oh, how's it, God? Um, how are you doing? I mean, we haven't spoken in a while, but I, I thought now's a good time to maybe just check in. How are you? <laughs> um, so I'm in a little bit of a pickle over here. It, it leads almost naturally to prayer. It, need, it, it leads almost naturally to oh, what is life about um, or what was life about, <laughs> I should say. Um, that, that story ends okay uh, in the sense that there was a ranger who said he saw us through his binoculars and thought those idiots are going to die. Um, and he came and decided to, to save us. And I'm still trying to find his name because I want to name my second child after him. But... Um, they are not answering the phone. So, so, so that is the biblical under, idea of the wilderness. It is the desert. You are completely vulnerable. You are completely exposed. But you know what? Throughout Scripture, the wilderness, the desert, becomes this paradigm, this symbol for where you have to go if you want to meet God. Moses, he, he leaves Cushy, Cairo, Palace, and he, he runs away, and he's in the desert, he's not in a good place, he's lost everything that he held dear, and where does he meet God? In the burning bush. And, I mean, it would have been a pity, because that's the only bush around, because it's a desert, there's nothing. He meets God in the wilderness. What about Jacob earlier? Jacob leaves his house, leaves the nice soup with his brother, you know, everything that he had there, he, he runs away. And where does he meet God? Where does he have the dream of the staircase to heaven? In the wilderness. And later on when he is meeting Esau and he's very worried about that, where does he wrestle with God? In the wilderness. Elijah, the same. Where does he hear the, the, the still voice of God? In the wilderness. In the New Testament, this happens as well. John the Baptist. What is, what is the little intro, introduction to the ministry of John the Baptist. At that point, the temple is corrupt. You can't really, uh, God is not really, um, I don't know, speaking through people who are um, preaching the word in Jerusalem or anywhere. And then it says, a voice cries from the wilderness. And that is why John the Baptist, this locust-eating, honey-drinking, baptizing guy, is hanging out there in the desert, and it seems like God is moving there. God is there. God is not there by the beautiful temple. God is there in the wilderness. So it becomes the symbol of the place that you go to if you want to have an encounter with God. And it even goes beyond the, the, the biblical text. Early in, the, in church history, there were these monastic communities that settled in North Africa. We called them the Desert Fathers. And these guys had a very you know, difficult existence, but it was by design. They, they would set up these monastic communities in the North of Africa, these uh, sometimes what would later become Carmelite uh, um, order. 
and they would live this very difficult life, but it would be a reminder of how dependent they are on God. And many people in the early church history, when they wanted to meet God, when they wanted to, to um, I don't know, connect with him, where did they go? Into the wilderness. All right. Now, at the risk of being taken too literally, I have to say this. Wilderness for us, and I think if we want to relate to the biblical text, the wilderness is when you lose something or when you lose everything, then you are tossed into the wilderness. When you lose a job, when you lose love, when you lose success, when you lose looks, when you lose the rugby, then you are tossed into the wilderness. And that is only half a joke. I read this morning, I, I, I promise you, I read an article in, uh, on, on a New Zealand newspaper where a psychologist is giving advice to the nation of how to deal with their recent losses to, to Ireland. And they, I'm, I'm serious. They say, you know, it's, it's such a big part of our, our um, understanding of who we are is to beat everybody. And this is very difficult for us to process. But here are a couple of ways in which I think we can process it as a nation. I kid you not. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, very lame wilderness. But maybe there's something uh, going on there. I mean, I felt a little bit of wilderness when we lost against Japan. I'm not going to lie. Uh, to get back on track, these things like a job, like success, like spouse, like looks, whatever it is, when you lose it, then you realize that these things have lulled you into a false sense of security. And when you lose it in the wilderness, it is completely exposed. So to a certain extent, I didn't feel... Uh, you know, a couple of years ago there in Sources Flay, that I am going to die soon. I felt kind of invincible. I can do stupid stuff, like walk in there in the middle of December and nothing's going to happen. And then after a while, I, I, you realize, man, I am so frail. And we humans are at the mercy of, in this desert, you are really at the mercy of, of, of the elements. So that is the wilderness, especially if we just interpret it in, in, in a not so literal sense. I want to just make one little disclaimer, and this is it. When you, when you lose something, when you go through something difficult, that might be because of your own sin, or that might be because of circumstances. But you, and, and, and God will use that to test you, to form you, to shape you. But the one thing that I have to say here is that God did not create a desert to just test us arbitrarily. Ha, uh, your kid is dying, hmm, how are you gonna handle that? I, I, I think that is a very one-dimensional view of evil and suffering. And, uh, and, and I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. us. But the one thing that we do know is it started with the garden, it's gonna end with the garden, but in the meantime, there's a lot of desert, there's a lot of wilderness, and God will use that to shape us. Are you guys with me? Because I think that is an important distinction. Friends, if we are honest with ourselves, we will realize that we actually do need the wilderness. We need the desert. Think of, maybe somebody's thinking of you right now, uh, but think of someone who, is, uh, who had just a very charmed life, very protected, 
And there's something in you that thinks, yes, th- th- this person has really not suffered a day in their lives. And they are a tad superficial because of it. I mean, don't all look at me when, when, you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you think of that. But the, the point is, is that we, we recognize that, that a bit of wilderness, a bit of desert, a bit of suffering is actually good. It shapes character, does it not? Now, there's a... There's an author, uh, he writes for the New York Times. I don't read the New York Times, but I occasionally read what this guy has to say because I think he is, uh, um, he's really funny. David Brooks is his name. And he writes an article on how, what he calls the national pastime, which is to just ensure that our kids are the best and that they are competing and that they can be turbocharged for the future. And how this has now become a thing of shopping. You are literally shopping for jeans, for eggs, for sperm, um, so that you can ensure that your kids will be handsome, that they will be clever, that they will, 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 will have a good heart, you know, sort of, sort of condition, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is what he says. He says, shoppers can use these sites and select much better genetic material than would be possessed by someone they could realistically lure into bed. (laughs) Okay? So he's saying that you can now shop for these eggs that you can't necessarily convince to sleep with you um, and raise a child with you, so now you can sort of shop uh, and and find their eggs that way. Um, Then he says, uh, that you can't realistically lure into bed, and they can more efficiently engage in the national pastime, which is rigging our children's lives so they will be turbocharged for success. He goes on and he says, he first goes on and talks about um, physical ability. They should be these kind of people. These are the eggs and sperm we want. These people, when they jog, nothing moves. Um, And then he says, nor is brain power neglected. In a bow to all that is sacred in our culture, one sperm bank has one branch located between Harvard and MIT and the other next to Stanford. An ad in the Harvard Crimson offered 50,000 US dollars for an egg from a Harvard woman. A recent ad in the Chicago Maroon at the University of Chicago offered 35 US dollars for a Chicago egg and stipulated you must be very healthy, very intelligent, and very attractive, and most of all, very happy. Liberal political views and athletic ability are pluses. <laughs> and, and David Brooks thinks of this, and he says the following. The people who do this will pay no heed to the fact that mediocre looks have always been a great spur to creative achievements. <laughs> and he says... And ugliness is the mother of genius. <laughs> so, I mean, just think of all the clever people in this world, and they are not necessarily, you know, uh, g- going to uh, be on any teenage girl's or boy's wall, right? Uh, so, so he says that it's often, you know, a deficiency. If you, uh, w- w- when I gave the sermon this morning, somebody sent me a message that says, if you're ugly, you have to be funny. Um, and, you know, and, and, and in a certain way, it's true. If you have a certain deficiency, uh, one way or the other, maybe you're dumb, maybe um, you're ugly, maybe I don't know what it is, then that is usually a way to try and navigate reality, and it gives rise to something else and something unique. Um, he goes on to say, on the other hand, what if nurture still trumps nature? After all, if you look at world historical figures, you're struck by how many had their parents die when they were about 12. 
He goes on, he says, how many super concerned moms and dads are going to put that in their date book? Die sometime this year. <laughs> so it's true. It's, it's often the case that these people whose sperm and eggs we want so that our children can be supercharged for success, the reason why they are successful more often than not is because they went through some sort of wilderness experience. If you think of a Mandela or a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Sia Kulisi or a Moses or an Apostle Paul, these people were created partly, if not primarily, through an extended time in the wilderness. This is true for character development and this is true for intimacy with God. We've already alluded to this, but, but when you are dependent on God, you... You pray, you seek him out more, and it would therefore be a terrible waste if we waste our time in the wilderness. If you go through something difficult, if you find yourself in the desert, it, 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 would, be such, it would be so sad to waste it because more often than not, that can lead to intimacy with, with God. You know what? There are certain things in Scripture that you can read at one point and not access it at all. And at another time you can read it and then you can access it. And you know what's the difference? Your circumstances. At one point a particular verse means something, at another time it means nothing because you've changed. Your heart is not receptive to it. Philip Calcott, who we're gonna visit on our space camp and you guys all should go, it is absolutely compulsory. Um, he, he had a stroke. Um, as, as somebody in his, I think, mid-40s at that time, he's this very healthy guy, he is this Oxford physicist, um, and then all of a sudden he's got a stroke and his body is not, his, his mind is there, but his body is not working with him, and he's lying um, dead still in this hospital bed or in this ambulance as he's whizzed off to, to the hospital, and the only thing that comes into his head is, even though I go through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil, he recites Psalm 23. And he says before that, he's never cared about Psalm 23. It always seemed a bit cliche, a bit silly. But for the first time, he heard it and he felt it. Why? Because his circumstances changed. There's this friend of mine who went to study in Holland. And if you know anything about the Dutch, um, if you're a Christian there, they sort of tag you. It's an endangered species over there. So this friend of mine, she takes out her her Bible, and she reads it the evening, and the roommate asks her, what are you reading? And she says, uh, no, the Bible. Oh, I thought you already read that. Um, you know, haven't you, haven't you already read that book? It's, you know, it's like a, I don't know, a John Grisham novel. I thought you finished that already. But the point is, you're never finished with the Bible because your circumstances change and certain things are illuminated depending on where you find yourself. Maybe one last example to just strike this home when it comes to the intimacy that we experience with God when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Uh, in between tours now, I, I had the privilege to visit Poland. I've always wanted to go to Poland because I find them fascinating. And I went to the south to a city called Krakow and a couple of kilometers west of Krakow is Auschwitz, the concentration camp or rather the death camp that was responsible for more than a million people that died uh, there. And it is, it is, so obscene and stirring and moving really to to walk there and there's a room 
that is just filled with human hair as they removed the hair of the woman and saved it because they, they would sell it or weave it into carpet and stuff later. And obviously they, they couldn't finish the job. So there's a, a room completely full of human hair. And you just see the belongings of the inmates come there. And it's, it's, it's just horrible to see these little shoes of baby boys and baby girls that's just stacked there as they go into this, into this death camp. And you know what? Auschwitz is probably the number one example that is given against the existence of God for everybody that is trying to invoke the problem of evil as an argument against God. Now, not only Auschwitz, but most of the death camps were in Poland. So they suffered tremendously as a, as a country. At the, they were completely at the mercy of the Nazis. The Nazis attacked them. That's actually what started the Second World War. And then later on, it was the communists that came in and also oppressed them. Poland has this geo geographical misfortune of being placed between Germany and Russia in the 20th century. And that is a horrible place to be. That is like to, to be placed between a rock and a Russia. Um, and, uh, and here's the thing. The Poles are religious. They are very Catholic. They are the only European country that is still very Christian. And the churches are relatively full there. Um, people are, the, the church is vibrant in Poland. And the connection between their suffering and their faith, I think is there for everybody to see. All right. There's something else that I think we need to um, uh, realize here, and that is in verse 19 in this passage that we read, there's a reference to idols. It seems like Moses is saying, look, I, I think the 40 years in the desert has gotten most of these idols out of you, but, um, but do not bow down to other idols. Do not fo follow other idols. Now, friends, Again, hopefully by now, you would know that if you dismiss this as sort of primitive religion where people are just bowing down uh, to, to statues and gods and, and whatnot, hopefully you, you don't think of it that way. But let me just say this. In the desert, it kills and exposes idols like, like nothing else. If you've got an unhealthy relationship with your phone, for example, then just go on some sort of uh, safari somewhere where there's no cell phone reception. And after a while, it is exposed to you how, uh, in, in what way that, that relationship is unhealthy. You're going to look at your phone the whole time. <laughs> I mean, what? They're not gonna use, I can't Google. And you take it out. No, no WhatsApps. No, no signal. Okay, okay. And then every time you count how much you do it, you realize, man, I've got an unhealthy relationship. Or maybe you go to a place with very bad coffee um, and you're craving coffee. And... Uh, and then you realize, no, 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 I mean, I, I didn't think I had a coffee problem until I went to Egypt. And all that they have is Arabic coffee, which is, you know, purgatory. So, so and, and I realized I, I am maybe a little bit too reliant on, on coffee. When, when you're in the desert, these idols are exposed. So, for example, one of the things that I think is exposed in the desert, at least for Israel, I think it should be for most of us, is that they thought that their primary problem was, was Egypt. They thought if they can just be liberated from these oppressors, then everything will be fine. But they didn't realize that they were the problem. Maybe not primarily, but definitely 
a big part of the problem. And we often think, if I can just get rid of this job, then everything is going to be okay. If I can just be liberated from this job or this boss, I'm going to be okay. No, you are still there, and you're a part of the problem. If I can just get out of this romantic relationship or get rid of this spouse, then everything is going to be okay. No, it almost never works out that way. You make an idol of your liberation from this something. In the desert, these things are killed again and again and again. All right. There was a question that emerged this morning, so I want to preempt that and say the following. Does that mean that if it's going relatively good in your life, if things are going relatively well, should you maybe tonight go and light your fire and just sit it just so that there can be some sort of a wilderness experience so that you can be dependent on God? Should you sabotage your life? I don't think that is, um, that is the message. The one thing that we say is that wilderness will come one way or the other, and it is something that one should embrace. It is uh, an opportunity to have intimacy with God. That's the one thing. The other thing is, it is a biblical command to weep with those who weep, to be in proximity with those people who is having a desert experience. So by going close to these people, to attend a funeral, for example, that is not that is not mine. It's not something that I struggle with. Maybe it's Philip's dad. So I didn't know Philip's dad, but now he, he died and Philip is going through this and I'm close to Philip and I, I go to that funeral. I go through the motions and I see this visually, how people are suffering. And there's growth there, even if it is secondhand. So by, by experiencing the desert, by being in proximity to those who are suffering, I think is one of the ways in which we can be, be very strategic about this. And then in the church calendar, we have this, this thing that is built in, which is we need to have this collective memory of the wilderness. We need to learn the lessons that Israel learned in the wilderness. And likewise, <clears throat> in, uh, you've got Ash Wednesday, which is usually in the beginning of, of, the, of I don't know, uh, somewhere in February. And then you've got the whole period of Lent leading up to Easter. And Lent is this time when we, super, not superficially, artificially, send ourselves into the wilderness and we fast something. We give up something so that we can artificially create this wilderness experience and hopefully it can lead to intimacy with God. So I, I just wanted to clarify, uh, clarify that. Okay, friends, but there's another point that we need to make and this is it. When, when Moses is saying, remember that you couldn't have bread and God gave you bread. Remember, you couldn't get water and God gave you water. So you, we are dependent on God for giving us food and drink. That is only half the point. He goes beyond that in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 when he says the following, but remember, man does not live by bread alone. So even if you have everything, even if all your immediate needs are met, you must be careful not to be lulled into this false sense of security into thinking that you are okay now because you're not. There is a hole in the very fabric of your soul that can only be satisfied by God. There is, um, the, the world will never give you what you need. Only God can give you what you really need. And I think that is the message that we need to take from, 
from the wilderness. And you know what? If I'm honest with myself, I, I know this. I know that before I go to bed, I shouldn't be scrolling and looking at random YouTube videos of cute cats or, or whatever. Um, I shouldn't be doing something mindless on, on, on social media. I know that I should use this time intentionally, and I know it's going to be good for me, but yet I do what I don't want to do. I, I do not draw near to God. I, I know that the bread of life is actually what I need, but, but it's so easy to just be lulled into the, and to just go with the motions of life. And that is partly why we need to go, come to church, why we need to be in a community where we say, remember, you need God, you need God, and I'm so glad that it's going well with you, and we're going to celebrate with you, and I'm so sorry it's not going well with you, and we're going to mourn with you. But to be part of a church community is actually one of the things that Moses tells these people to do, to, to remember this, that man does not live by bread alone. So we constantly fail at this. But the New Testament is so brilliant in how it connects this wilderness story of Israel into the mission of Jesus. What was Jesus's first action in his public ministry? Bible trivia. I mean, it's not quiz night. It's not going to count yet. He is tempted in the desert. You've got this wonderful event where Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. God says, in you, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. And what happens then? Out in the desert you go. <laughs> that doesn't seem nice. You've got this wonderful fatherly affirmation of Jesus, and then he goes to the desert. In this passage, in Deuteronomy 8, there's also another line that says, like a man disciplines his son, the Lord God will discipline you. So the interesting thing is that God has done this fatherly act, Israel is my child, into the desert you go. Can you see that testing is not necessarily something that is, uh, um, it, 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 it comes from a place of love. It can, as a matter of fact, come from a, from a very real uh, place of love. And this is what's happening in the desert. And Jesus is tempted by the Satan there. And the first temptation is at sort of the low level, the sensual temptation. Um, you can turn these rocks into stone. And Jesus says what? He says, man does not live by bread alone. He quotes this Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 passage. But man lives on the every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the temptation level lifts a little bit. He goes now to the level of power. You can have power. You can have all these kingdoms. And Jesus withstands this test. He doesn't, he doesn't bow down to it. He doesn't give in. And then the temptation goes one step uh, higher to glory. And Jesus doesn't fall for that either. He resists this, this tempter. And you know what happens then? Jesus withstood this first temptation. But then on the cross... Something happens, and I never realized this until I, I, I prepared for this. His last temptation, remember, he could live without bread. He says, because as long as I have God, if, as long as I have the word of God, I'm okay. Man does not live on bread alone. But on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems like the last thing that he held on to was taken away from him as well. And there he experienced the ultimate desert, 
the ultimate wilderness. When, I mean, he doesn't speak much on the cross, but one of the few sentences he says is, I thirst, I thirst. He is in the wilderness. He is in the hell of desert as, as those words are leaving his mouth. He's got a crown of thorns, again, an image of the wilderness. He is at the limit of physical and spiritual exhaustion and isolation. And yet he passes the test. What does that mean for us? I think it means a lot. Let me just focus on one for now. If you go find yourself in the wilderness, maybe you're not there now, but you will find yourself there you know, if, if you live long enough. And you find yourself in the, the wilderness and you pray, then you are going to pray to a God who can identify, who can relate. And surely that makes a difference. I mean, <clears throat> if, you, if you think about it, when, when you speak to somebody with, because you maybe are suffering with uh, depression or, or something, and the person speaking back to you says, oh, you know what, that, that's about 22% of cases, and I think that pull might help, but also consider this. And they are sort of very matter-of-factly and scientific about the whole thing. And I think there's a place for that. But can you at least agree that there's a massive difference when the person that you are confiding in says, I have gone through exactly the same thing? It makes all the difference in the world. We are worshiping a God who went into the wilderness of wildernesses. And when we go into the wilderness, we can take that with us. I've had the privilege to be you know, in many places, and I've been in many Buddhist temples, and I've been in many cathedrals, and I don't know enough about Buddhism, so I don't want to you know, uh, do a, a mischaracterization of them. But loosely quoting um, John Stott, if you, if you look at the Buddha statue, and there he is with his arms folded, his eyes closed, with a ghost of a smile across his face, very detached from this world. That doesn't seem to me like a god or a deity that is interested in the wilderness, that meets us in the wilderness. But then when you go to these great cathedrals and there you see the bruised and battered Jesus Christ with the crown of thorns who is, at the, is depicted at the limit of his physical and, um, and, 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 and spiritual, uh, at the limit of, of uh, at his physical and spiritual limit, then that is a God that relates. And that's got to mean something. We've got to take God with us, Jesus with us in the wilderness. Friends, I want us to close our eyes. Um, and then maybe just before I pray, I want us to just do a little bit of inventory, a bit of examination. The first question is, what, what are the things at the moment in your life? Maybe you're not going through a desert at the moment. But what are the things that you suspect might be exposed in the desert?
basically going to ask the same question, just in different words. What are the things that are distracting you from intimacy with God? What are the idols currently in your life that you are bowing down to instead of bowing down to Jesus? Maybe you are going through a bit of a desert experience Maybe ask God, in what way is he shaping you at the moment? What is it that he wants you to learn from this, to grow from this experience? Jesus, it is so often the case that you only become our light in complete darkness. You only become our fountain when the water has dried up. And you only become our bread when we can't find any. Some of us are there and we pray that you will meet at them there or us there in that wilderness. Some of us, Lord, are lulled into a false sense of security. We think that we are in control and that comfort has robbed us of intimacy with you. Pray, Lord, that we will be strategic in how we seek intimacy with you. That we will not allow these luxuries to distract us. That we will seek you. That we can artificially create a wilderness experience. I pray, Lord, that we will be a community that will come together and remind each other weekly and the fact that man does not live on bread alone. Lord, we need you more than anything. There is a hole in our hearts that can only be filled by you. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you that when we go into the wilderness, we can take that wonderful image of you in the wilderness of wildernesses and the uh, the ultimate desert on the cross with us. In Jesus' name, amen.